0: This week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Saks Underwear. Saks make truly the greatest underwear ever. They have been toted as the best underwear for men in hundreds of magazines, including Men's Health and Forbes and pretty much everyone else. A few months ago, I was just like you. I had a collection of boxers and briefs that have been growing forever, all from big box stores and random places, and then I got the gift of Saks for Christmas, and honestly, as silly as it sounds, my life changed. Sacks are breathable, stylish, and support you in such a way that I had never experienced working in a kitchen every day, and also just going through everyday life. Head on over to SacksUnderwear.com, that's S-A-X-X dot com, to check out what I and ten thousands of other men have already figured out, that sacks are the best, and you have been wasting your time wearing anything else. Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I very quickly want to say that if you can take the time to rate and review the show on whichever platform you listen to us on, or just tell a friend, we would greatly appreciate it. Word of mouth is what got Let's Talk About Chef to be a new and noteworthy podcast on iTunes, and have fans all around the world. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, The Alexa in Your House, and everywhere else you can think of to listen to podcasts. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me personally on Instagram at chefbrianclark. One more thing before we dive in. This week's episode deals with war, death, poison, murder, and pretty much a lot of other horrible things. So if you don't want to hear about that or you have kids around, you may want to skip this one or wait to listen. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. When we think about war, when we think about World War II specifically, we tend to see images of swastikas and of Nazis, of Saving Private Ryan-style scenes of men storming the beaches. We see things like concentration camps and of horror. World War II was completely insane. Here you had a man in Hitler who seemingly single-handedly almost took over the world, and when I say almost, he really did almost take over the entire world. When we think of Hitler, we think of the speeches, of the mustache, of the SS in Berlin in the Wolf's Lair. But in reality, Hitler was weak. He was small. He was riddled with gastrointestinal issues that forced him to eat vegetarian and forced him to be in constant pain. He was a drug addict. The one thing we don't really think about Hitler is the fear that consumed him on a daily basis. The fear of being killed, of being assassinated, of being taken out before he could conquer the world And it was that fear and the ways in which he tried to avoid being killed that we are going to talk about today. At the Wolf's Lair, Hitler's castle in what is now modern-day Poland, he lived and ran his axis of evil protected by mountains and the thick steel and concrete walls. He was holed up away from everything, and a rumor had started circulating. One that had come from the mouths of spies that had been caught and tortured for the truth. And that was that the British were planning on poisoning Hitler's food. They were going to try and kill him like the Roman Emperor Claudius had been killed. They were going to try and poison him. And so in that small village where Hitler lived and ran his armies, 15 girls were taken from their homes and tasked with eating Hitler's food every single day. So every single day in the morning, these 15 girls would sit down to one of the most lavish meals they had seen in years with food flown in from all over the Nazi empire and had been expertly prepared for the Führer, and they would sit and eat and wonder if after each bite they would die. One woman survived that ordeal. One woman managed to escape Germany and escape the clutches of the Nazis. She survived eating the food for Hitler, and then she survived much, much worse. Her name is Margot Wolff. And today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are telling her story and the story of feeding the Führer. Hitler's food testers.
1: Mean goodbye but hello to love when the lights go on again the world.
0: Food tasters go back pretty much as far as human history does. The job of a food taster is exactly as it sounds. You taste the food to see if it's been poisoned before it goes to the person who you are tasting the food for. Kings, noblemen, emperors, even the Obamas a few years back all had food tasters because poisoning somebody in the past was a quick and easy way to kill your target. If you could gain access to the kitchen, you had a better chance of getting away with murder and without being caught, and if the nobleman or leader had bodyguards, it was one less thing to worry about. In the past, killing a king or queen meant that you were now in control, and so people poison people all of the time. Margot Wolk was 24 when the war broke out. She lived in Berlin in a small apartment with her husband, and she made her living as a secretary. As the Nazi party rose, she watched from afar, not really believing that Hitler would be able to rise to power, despite what we are taught or believe not all Germans were into the idea of fascism. She and her husband maintained their jobs until he was drafted and he had to go to war, and so they tried to maintain their lives, but when the Allies began bombing Berlin in 1941, a stray bomb landed on her home, reducing it to rubble. Her husband had already been long gone by this time, and so with nowhere to go and wanting to get out of the dangers of Berlin, she left, heading to her mother-in-law's home in eastern Prussia, in the small village of Parch, which is today Parks, Poland. Living in gross Parch was like living in a dream compared to the torn-apart Berlin she had run from. Her mother-in-law's house was small but had a huge garden and lots of trees. She spent her days wandering through the woods of the idyllic town where people strolled happily and lived their lives. The war did affect the town, though. Food was hard to come by. Things like butter, cream, salt, and meat were virtually impossible to get with everything being sent to the troops fighting the western and eastern fronts, but it was survivable. You would think that life would have been fine, things would have moved on, but less than three kilometers from where Margot was the sound of cranes and tractors could be heard at all hours of the day and night, and trucks armed with Nazi soldiers would drive through the town loaded with steel and cement and guns because in the woods next to the town Hitler had decided was the perfect place for his headquarters, tucked away from the front lines and fortified by massive steel and concrete walls. The Wolf's lair was where Hitler thought he would be safe except that a rumor had begun to spread that his officers, and a rumor that had been confirmed by British spies who had been caught and tortured for information, that the British were trying to poison the Fuhrer, and they were going to keep trying until they succeeded, and they were going to do it at the Wolf's Lair. The next morning, the SS showed up at Margot's front door and demanded she come with them. They drove to the Wolf's Lair, where she and 14 other girls were placed in a small room with a wooden table. Hitler's personal chef, Constance Manziarli, sent food into the room, where it was placed in front of the terrified girls. The food was asparagus, barely cooked and perfectly ripe, served with an herb butter. None of the girls sitting in that room had seen or tasted butter in years, and they were instructed to eat. And so they did, realizing what they were doing. They were seeing if they were going to die. If what they were eating, this beautiful plate of food that smelt and looked and tasted amazing, was going to kill them. When none of the girls died, the food was packed into crates and brought to the wolf's lair just down the road for Hitler to eat. Every day that Hitler was in residence at the wolf's lair, Margot would be picked up and driven to the room with the table and the food for Hitler would be brought out and she would eat. Some of the girls would be so terrified with the thought that each bite could be their last that they would be sobbing, holding on to one another for support while they ate. All of the food was bland and boring, but they were delicious grains and vegetables, maybe spiked with butter, and because Hitler was a vegetarian, no meat would be served. Service personnel would put filled platters with vegetables, sauces, noodle dishes, and exotic fruits on the table for the girls to eat. And then after the meal, they would sit in silence, listening to a clock and wondering if at any moment they would start to fall over one by one. When an hour had passed, they would start to cry from relief. Knowing that they at least got to live for another day, then they would go home, and then they would come back the next. Can you imagine what that would be like? Security at the Wolf's Lair was so tight that none of the food tasters ever actually saw Hitler, although they did see his dog a lot. They were the only people that were allowed to continually leave the complex after they were done eating, until July 20th, 1944, as they sat in the room listening to the clock tick slowly on the wall, wondering if what they ate was going to poison them, they were blown off their chairs backwards from the force of the blast that had detonated in the room down the hall. That bomb was Operation Valkyrie, the failed assassination attempt of Hitler by his own officers. And for a few glorious minutes, the women in the room and everyone else assumed that the Fuhrer was dead and they were laughing and holding each other and dancing because the war would be over and their nightmare would be over. Except as Hitler walked out of the room with only an injury to his arm and some bruising because somehow the massive table leg that stood between him and the bomb concealed in the suitcase kept him alive by shielding him from the blast. The Nazis dealt with Operation Valkyrie by arresting and murdering about 5,000 people who they assumed to be in on the plot. Operation Valkyrie meant many things. It meant that Hitler's own officers wanted him dead. It meant that security had to be tighter. It meant that the fear and paranoia that had ruled Hitler's life was about to go through the roof to new levels that even the Fuhrer didn't expect, and it also meant that Margot and the other girls weren't allowed to go home anymore. They had to live in the compound and live in the room where they ate their last meal every single day. It meant captivity with no end in sight. Vargo's captivity with the other food tasters was a nightmare. They were guarded 24-7 in an abandoned old school just a few steps from the entrance to the lair. Hitler wanted his tasting girls kept safe and away from any contact with the outside world because he knew better than anyone that if any one of them got access to poison, they could kill him. He wasn't going to take that chance, and they were his final line of defense when it came to his food. It should also be noted that after Operation Valkyrie, Hitler kind of went insane. The amount of methamphetamine that he was getting injected with every day mixed with his absolute paranoia turned him into a complete monster. Every morning the girls would be woken up by a screaming SS officer where they would be marched down to the room with the table. The table would be covered in food and they would eat, filling their mouths and stomachs with food for a man they despised, not knowing if somehow a British spy or rebelling German officer had put cyanide in an apple or slipped arsenic into the tomato sauce. Then, they sat and waited the hour to die. Every single day.
1: This is how Russia battered open the door of Berlin in the last weeks of April. The city's last days as the capital of Hitler's Reich. In Linden, orders go up for German civilians. Dazed and beaten, they stand at underground entrances which housed many thousands during the bombardment. Landmarks of the beaten town, the Reichstag, the Brandenburg Gate. Shell-scarred and broken, they were once Germany's pride. Every guidebook boosted them.
0: As the Russians marched closer and closer to Berlin, Hitler holed up in his bunker there, and the war that never seemed like it was going to end, seemed like it was going to end at any moment. As Russian troops moved closer to capture the Wolf's Lair in Poland, an SS officer who had been friendly to Margot woke her late one night and brought her to a train heading to Berlin, along with Joseph Gables, the propaganda minister for the Nazis, and she returned to Berlin as the Allies were bombing it back to the Stone Age. By the time Germany surrendered to the Russians, Hitler had committed suicide in his bunker along with his chef, and Margot saw the officer that had saved her life by putting her on the train. She ran up to him in the street and asked what had happened to her friends, the other food tasters. The officer quickly told her that the Russians had arrived the next day and shot them all, and then he left Margot on the street. What happened next is one of the most brutal things you can imagine. But Margot, after surviving for two years, eating Hitler's food, escaping the Russians and making it back to Berlin, tried to escape the city by dressing like an old woman. She was wearing her disguise and almost on a train leaving the city when Russian soldiers saw her legs. One of them had slipped through the dress, revealing her age. They grabbed her out of line and kept her as a sex slave for two weeks before the British showed up and put an end to how the Russians were treating the German civilians. Margot was never able to bear children after what had happened to her. By 1946, Margot had tried to move on. She was living in an apartment and had become a secretary again, and she was thin, very thin. Eating food was not something she was able to do well anymore. She was at home when there was a knock on the door, and when she opened it, she found her husband standing there. He weighed a 100 pounds and had a bandage covering half of his head, but the Russians had released him from their labor camp and he had made it back to her. She hadn't known if he was alive or dead for over four years, and they remained married until he passed away 30 years ago. Margot's story wasn't told until she was 95. She never told anyone about the nightmare she lived every day, eating food and waiting to die. It took her decades to be able to eat food and enjoy it again, an entire life spent being afraid of eating. When we think about war, we don't really tend to think about people like Margot people that had no choice but to do what they were told. I cannot imagine the nightmare of being starving and of having spent years not seeing things like tomatoes, cheese and butter and coffee to have it laid in front of you every single day, and then even though you are being offered the best ingredients the world has to offer, you sit there and wonder with each mouthful if you're going to die. Being forced to eat so that you can feed and keep safe the man you want to die. We talk about food on this show. We talk about memories and chefs and lives spent feeding people. We talk about horrible things and we mostly talk about wonderful things. We talk about food and how we all love it so much. Even though it took Margot her entire life to enjoy eating and to enjoy food again, she did eventually learn to love it. And I can think of nothing better than this to end this horrible story and this week's show with. Margot passed away peacefully in 2014. She was 96 years old, and her favorite food was coffee cake. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode of the show, and until then, as always, have a great service, and have a great week.
1: If you're traveling in the North Country Fire where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there For she once was a true love man If you go when snowflakes storm When the rivers freeze and summer ends Please see she has a coat so warm To keep her from the howling wind Please see if her hair hangs long It rolls and flows all down her breast Please see for me if her hair's hanging long For that's the way I remember her